According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, As I said, John chapter 11 will be our passage. We're dealing with the resurrection of Lazarus. And uh, getting on down to verse 44, which will kind of bring this episode to a close. However, episode 27 just moves right on into verses 45 and following with the reaction, uh, the aftermath of the miracle and uh, the rejoicing and feasting on the part of those that uh, have the capacity to uh, to appreciate God's ministry. And then uh, the uh, murder and hatred and evil on the part of those that were uh, very much upset by uh, the things here that were done. So I think the aftermath is going to be interesting to study as well in uh, episode number 27. All right, before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer so that we can suit up properly uh, in our priestly garments, cleansed and prepared for priestly service, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today thankful for your truth, thankful for the privilege we have to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, thankful that... We have uh, a place in which to meet here today and uh, thankful for the progress that's being made over on Cross Park Drive. We're looking forward to making that move, Father, and seeing the building go up is, uh, is just a reminder of how uh, gracious you are day by day and moment by moment. Father, we uh, just commit to you now this time of study, asking for your hand of blessing upon it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I've been trying to maintain... Uh, Agape love for uh, the city of Austin, which is uh, almost beyond what I'm able to bear, but God promised that he wouldn't do that. When I think about how they turned our summer construction project into a winter construction project with their delays and their uh, difficulties and their uh, wickedness, then I have to stop and say, wait a minute, God is still sovereign, he's in control, and uh, he would not have permitted the city to give the delays they gave if it wasn't a part of his plan. So I'm thankful for that. And uh, that's what allows me to uh, confess and get back in fellowship and so forth. But the environmental Nazi activist crusaders that run this town are uh, certainly improving my prayer life and uh, allowing me to, to pray more consistently for them. In any event, it was interesting. I got some pictures yesterday of the snow covering our steel girders and all the piles of construction material over there just sitting there. Of course, no workers in sight. They're all off for the day. And hopefully they're back at it today and uh, get uh, get working. Well, all right. John chapter 11. Um, dealing with Lazarus, dealing with Mary and Martha, dealing with their blame. Um, and ultimately, this is what we want to try to evaluate here today is the um, attitudes behind why they were blaming him. Martha blamed him. Mary blamed him. Uh, you didn't get here in time. You should have been here. Why weren't you here? Uh, sort of thing. And it calls into question all sorts of attributes. It calls into question, well, does God, uh, was he even able to keep this from happening? And that's really the skepticism from the crowd. Uh, Martha had no doubts that had he been there, he had the power to keep Lazarus from dying. Likewise, Mary uh, had no doubts that had he been there, uh, that he had the power to keep Lazarus from dying. Uh, when you get to the crowd and their questions, though, they, they really cast that into doubt. 
uh, and really the expression there in verse 37, could this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And they just leave it as a question. You know, could he have kept him? And uh, whereas the sisters have no doubt, they they have the doubt there. They're even pondering uh, that that's probably why he uh, he didn't show up because he couldn't have done anything to stop it. He didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to lose face, as it were, in in uh, proving how uh, you know hopeless he uh, he couldn't have stopped this from happening, kind of a thing. Well, when you start to doubt these things, like I said a moment ago in the introduction, when you start to lose sight of divine viewpoint, then you start to really go down mental paths of thinking that you don't want to go down there, see. And uh, so, I mean, when you start asking the question, did he not, was he not able to keep Lazarus from dying? Uh, Then you start to ask, well, did he not want to keep Lazarus from dying? Why was he not there? See, uh, if he would have loved him, then he would have been there or he should have known kind of a thing. Why did he not know ahead of time? Uh, And if he doesn't know about Lazarus, then how can we trust him in other things? He's he's a prophet. He's talking about the end of the age. He's talking about the future of Israel and so forth. And um, why should we believe anything he says if he doesn't even know that his his dear friend is going to die in you know in time to get there to keep him from dying sort of a thing so this is these are all the human approaches to the whole process which uh is entirely relative entirely human entirely selfish and so forth and you would think that um well, let me ask this. If, in fact, you know, if we had today, if we had prophets today that could uh, predict all things, you know, in the future and could do miracles and keep things from happening and so forth, well, then we would, uh, no one should ever be sick ever again, right? Or no one should ever die ever again. And we should just continually keep uh, folks uh, in perfect health and, and, and prevent all dying until, you know, they reach some you know, you figure at some age, you finally say, okay, that's, you know, that's long enough. They can go ahead and go. Why is that? Why do we have that attitude? You know, why is it in our prayer life that every time we hear, oh, here's a here's a cancer diagnosis, and then the instant response is, oh, well, we, they got to get healed from that. They got to. That's not right. You know, we don't want them to die of that until they're, you know, we get some cutoff. What is it? A hundred? If someone lives to a hundred, we say, okay, that's that's good enough. You made triple digits, and and you can go ahead and die now. Why do we do that? See, that's entirely human in its approach, and I think. This, then, is what lies behind the weeping. And, and really what I'm going to address today is Jesus wept. And uh, the concept between his weeping and all their weeping and wailing and crying and boohooing and all the rest. Now, this chapter has a lot of crying. And uh, fortunately, we can distinguish uh, between the vocabulary, uh, the sisters, the crowd, uh, the, the mourners and all that, is uh, the hopeless crying of, of, uh, of Clio. And I'll give you the vocabulary on that. When Jesus weeps, it's a different term that's used. In fact, it's a unique term that's used only here in the Bible. And uh, and I think there's something significant to be made from that in the fact that um, the Holy Spirit inspired John to use a different term for verse 35 than he uses anywhere else in the New Testament. So let's take a look at it. We left off last week with Roman numeral, not Roman numeral, but main point seven. The, uh, the great I am message that he gives here. I am the resurrection and the life. And uh, I hope I didn't walk through it too quickly. Uh, so that you lost track of it. I think this is a very well-known chapter and a well-known concept, and you understand. But let's just look at it again in verses 25 through 27, in case there's confusion there. He says, I am the Anastasis, and I am the Zoe. That's uh, where we get the girls' names of Anastasia and Zoe. I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Uh, So clearly, if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the resurrection in Christ unto uh, unto glory. 
He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Right? You understand that? That's the, the relationship of physical life and spiritual life, physical death, spiritual death. Uh, if you, uh, he who, um, believes in me, it's faith in Christ that produces this, it's the only way to receive eternal life, will live even if he dies. So, uh, faith in Christ means that physical death does not end uh, God's plan for you. That there is uh, the, the resurrection again. There is another life after this life. And uh, you understand that. And then he goes on to say, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And this is uh, not physical death. It's not to say that if you're saved, you're immune to physical death at that point. It means that you have now spiritual life. Your spirit, human spirit is made alive and that cannot die. You will never die. When you have spiritual life, you will never die. You can never lose that because spiritual life is eternal. And then he says, do you believe this? And it's a matter for faith. It's a matter that all believers uh, apprehend on a grace basis as a matter of faith. And so she says to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the... And, and I like that. He says, do you believe? And she says, I have believed. And there's perhaps more that I should have emphasized there. I didn't. But, um, you know, in the in the aspect of past completed faith and present ongoing faith, you understand that, you know, past completed faith, you know, you're saved by grace through faith. You have eternal life. Well, what happens if you stop? What happens if you stop walking by faith? What happens if it doesn't alter, of course, the fact that you're saved, you're eternally secure, uh, having believed? See, but if you're not presently walking by faith then you can have a hopeless walk and and what what benefit is there to your salvation if you're not taking advantage of the walk by faith that you're supposed to have you're back to walking by sight again and sadly you're walking like mere men and that's the that's the uh, rebuke that Paul gives the Corinthians there in in first Corinthians chapter three. So he says, do you believe this? Not have you ever believed this, but do you believe this? Are you presently now today walking in a, uh, a faith perspective. Well, uh, she says, I have believed that you are the Christ, Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So, yes, she is saved. She is a believer. She has been uh, a believer in the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, the one coming into the world, even if at the moment uh, her, her faith is wavering. At the moment, her faith is not as strong as, uh, as it should be. All right, well, that's the I am message of resurrection and life and uh, the principles there. We gave you some subpoints on that with the vocabulary and uh, the things there. All right, moving on now to point eight, our content for today. Jesus was deeply moved, we're told, as well as troubled. Literally, he troubled himself. And uh, we're going to relate verse 33 and verse 38 together in the process of this uh, examination here today. Jesus was deeply moved. That's one expression. And we're also told that he troubled himself. There's the second expression. Both of them are found in verse 33. Um, the deeply moved is repeated when he weeps. Uh, he weeps in verse 35 and then he's deeply moved again in verse 38. Uh, in verse 33, his deeply moved condition is related to the spirit. In verse 38, the deeply moved situation is, is internal, deeply moved within or in himself. And I don't view those as being contradictory. I think they're complementary and they give us the complete picture on this. So, um, 
Again, just look at it for yourself in verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and we'll give you the vocabulary on all that. This is the wailing, the crying, the, the uh, vocalized crying in, uh, in that. And the Jews came uh, with her also weeping. I don't like the term weeping. There. I want to I want to find different vocabularies. Maybe it's not wrong to call it weeping, but um, when you're gonna when you're gonna use the same words in verses 33 throughout the whole chapter, and then use the same term in verse 35, to me that doesn't communicate because that misses the point. All right, uh, the weeping. I'm, I'm gonna probably settle on crying rather than weeping, and uh, keep in mind that one is has uh, some audible. Uh, bewailing and some audible sound and some uh, in that, whereas uh, Jesus' activity is more of a silent tearing might be a better way to, instead of Jesus wept, Jesus teared might be a better way to uh, think of that in terms of he's not audibly crying out, he's not wailing, he's not, uh, you know, he's not heard for blocks around in his despondency. Well, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. So it's a spiritual function that is affecting him. And that's what I'll give you the uh, vocabulary for here in a moment. What I'm highlighting here, though, is that it's okay for believers to experience discouragements, to experience depressions, to be deeply moved. He's not carnal at this point. He does not sin in this chapter. If he sins even once, then he can't go to the cross to be our sinless substitute. You understand that? So being depressed is not carnality. Uh, dealing with it may take you into carnality, or responding to it may take you into carnality. But simply experiencing the the uh, emotional issues is not itself carnal. Are we clear on that? That ought to be the first observation we make in this whole process. All right. And then he was troubled, we're told. It's the second expression there in verse 33. Literally, he troubled himself, and he stirred himself up. And that's what... Uh, we want to evaluate also. All right, vocabulary then. We start with, here's a mouthful, um, embrimaamai, E-M-B-R-I, embry, E-M-B, let me not do embry, let me just start with E-M, E-M, because that's the prefix, and then brimaamai, B-R-I-M-A-O-M-A-I, it's number 1690 in the Strong's Index, uh, it's not a very common word at all. Um, the, the, if you uncompound it, take the E-M off, um, you have a few more secular uses and other applications of it. In fact, a whole family of brim words. The B-R-I-M stem has a whole assortment of nouns and adjectives and verbs and, and things that go with it. Uh, there is a related spelling and form that instead of A-O has O-O-M-A-I, so don't uh, be surprised if you come across that vocabulary in some of your studies as well. Uh, Embrimaamai is the term. Doug, do we have a visitor or someone out there that needs? I'm seeing strangers walking around. Thanks. Um, now, this is a term that really has a distinction if um, you're talking internally or externally. Okay. Uh, not uncommon at all. A lot of vocabulary does that. Whether it's something that you're speaking out loud or talking to a third party, uh, you might render a term one way. Or if it's internalized and you're just talking to yourself, then you might render it another way. Okay? We've got similar things like that in English and other languages and so forth. Well, uh, externally, this verb gets used a couple of times when Jesus is warning people or when he's scolding people. 
See, and you might warn your child, or you might scold a disobedient person, or you might warn uh, another person. And that's where it gets, that's how it gets used basically in Matthew and in Mark, in other in, in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, because it's an external. Jesus had done a miracle, and he warned them not to tell anybody, or uh, he uh, had done a miracle, and yet they uh, had little faith, and so he scolded them for their little faith, and so forth. And that would be an external use of the verb. If it's used internally, though. If it's used internally, do you ever chew yourself out? Do you ever scold yourself? Oh, I do it all the time. I think we all do. But there's a concept there, too, that what lies behind that? What lies within your internal self-reflexive scolding? Oftentimes it's a disappointment. Oftentimes it's a discouragement. Or sometimes it's a it's a sense that, um, that uh, you know, dummy, why did you do that? You know, don't do that again. Uh, there's a, that internal scolding that can take place. And maybe it's a, a scolding that takes place um, because of something you've done wrong or something that you don't want to do again. Okay. Or here's the other avenue when you do it. Because you really, really want to chew somebody out verbally, but you don't. <laughs> in other words, you just do it in your mind. Uh, because you know, if you say something to them, it's not going to go well. Okay. Not going to be a good experience. Um, they're not going to take it the right way anyway. Okay. Or perhaps you want to show some grace or perhaps you want to be merciful, uh, for whatever reason. And so you bite your tongue (laughs) and you don't chew them out. Okay. And in the case of these two sisters, they're grieving. They've lost their brother. You don't just want to chew them out and call them, you know, names or whatever. Tell them get some doctrine and grow up and develop some divine viewpoint. You can't do that. They're they're grieving. They, their brother's dead. See, and so he internalizes things, and uh, that's again not uh, uncommon even in our modern experiences. It's what it is. Now, the only other place in the scriptures where you have kind of an internal mode for this uh, in the Septuagint where it's used in Daniel chapter 11, and it's really not a related context in any respect, but it is a use, and and you can kind of gather the sense of it there. Daniel 11 and uh, verse 30. And I just like this episode because I like the history on it. Um, Daniel's appointing, uh, pro- prophesying regarding the Seleucid Greek king and uh, how he gets frustrated because he's trying to invade uh, Egypt and uh, trying to overthrow the uh, Ptolemy Greek king of Egypt. And uh, so this is where he's coming against the south, the king of the north against the king of the south. And then ships of Kittim. Uh, what we understand to be Rome, the Roman Empire, or the rising Roman Republic at this stage, will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened. He will be disheartened. And that's our expression here. Depressed, discouraged, deeply moved. It's rendered disheartened. And he is going to curse out the Romans, of course, in his mind. Okay, If the Romans could read his mind, they'd be like, what? Okay. my hat tip to Kung Fu Panda, if you've ever seen that. The, um, but he's internally cursing. He's internally angry. He's internally troubled. Rendered here 
um, despondent or um, what's the term? Um, verse 30. I'm losing my place today. Yeah, disheartened. And he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard and goes on. He's going to take out his anger against the Jews because he's so upset that the Romans wouldn't let him uh, invade Egypt. Okay, wonderful episode. If you want to go back and review the history on that, I, I just love it. It's we taught it in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's, a, it's a great testimony to the, um, the might of the Roman Republic and the and the different things. Do you remember that story when I taught it in the book of Daniel? The uh, uh, Roman general uh, meets him there, a consul, and uh, uh, Antiochus basically asks, he says, well, can I have have time to think about this? And the Romans said, well, take your time. And he drew a circle in in the sand around him with his sword, and he says, take all the time you want, but you will make your decision before you leave that circle. And uh, they've humiliated the uh, the uh, Antiochus in this in this episode. So he had no other choice. He had to surrender. He had to uh, submit to the Roman demands and not invade Egypt. And uh, that's the uh, the issue there. Anyway, this is the term that we have in uh, verse 33, and again in verse 38, where uh, first of all it's the spirit that's involved moving him. You have to understand, is that his human spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit? I think it's his human spirit that is uh, reacting to what he's seeing here. And then in verse 38, within. It's an internal movement of what uh, has him worked up here in this episode. Now, the second term is that he stirred up himself. He troubled himself. And this is our verb, tarasso, T-A-R-A-S-S-O. This one we have much uh, more familiarity with because it's used bunches of times. Not only is terrasso used, okay, 17 times for terrasso, but there are compounds left and right. There's hooper and hypo and epi and, and all kinds of terrasso compounds uh, throughout the scriptures. Terrasso, T-A-R-A-S-S-O, number 5015. And terrasso is to stir things up. If you're going to use it transitively and actively, Tarasso is stirring up like the, uh, that sick guy that was laying there in the, by the pool at, uh, in uh, Bethsaida. And uh, he was, uh, whenever the waters got stirred up, he was trying to get down in there where he might get healed and so forth. And uh, in the episode, I think it's John chapter 5, in, in that particular episode when Jesus healed him. Well, that's the literal use. That's the active, literal, transitive use to stir things up, like a pot of stu- uh, soup or whatever. Um, same idiom we have in our own modern times, our own language, if, if uh, things are stirred up inside, right? Or uh, you're trying to stir up a, a hornet's nest in the, in the workplace or the, the neighborhood or what have you. Stirring things up we have as an idiom. And that's what we have here, to be stirred, to be shaken, to be disturbed. And many, many uses, 17 of them in the New Testament, I think they're all worth understanding or they're all worth uh, being oriented to and they're, they're passages you're very familiar with and hopefully you'll identify again what I said about the first vocabulary term. If you're stirred up, that's not necessarily mean you're out of fellowship. If you're going through turmoil, that does not necessarily mean that you've, uh, you've lost your divine viewpoint perspective. It might be. It might be symptomatic of that, but it doesn't have to be. And you might simply recognize that it's a test along the way to see whether, in the spite of things being rocky, you're going to keep your eyes where they're supposed to be. See, you know, what kind of testing would it be of your faith if God, you know, evaluated you, but there weren't any problems going on? Hey, yeah, great, you're keeping your eyes on the Lord, but there's no, there's no bumps along the way. There's no struggles. There's no conflict. Okay, so 
these are the applications here. Right? And so just real quickly, uh, we won't spend a whole lot of time on any of these, but uh, you should be familiar with almost all of them. Matthew 2, 3, uh, Herod the king heard about uh, the Magi are showing up and saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And uh, we saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Well, when Herod the king heard all this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, it wasn't good news message for Herod. Uh, there's a king of the Jews has been born. Wait a minute. You know, <laughs> after he had worked so hard to claim his throne, he uh, wasn't about to let some prophesied uh, Davidic king take it away from him. Uh, likewise, in Matthew 14:26, Matthew 14:26, another episode where Tarasso occurs. Um, the disciples are in the boat. He didn't go with them on this trip. And uh, uh, in the fourth watch of the night, he comes to them walking on the sea. And uh, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified. Okay, and that's our term, Tarasso, and it's instead of translated troubled, uh, I guess. Uh, Lockman Foundation felt that troubled was a little weak for this uh, story, so they translated it terrified. Okay, well, how would you react if you're in a boat and you see a guy walking across the water there in the middle of the night? And uh, they said, it's a ghost, it's a phantasma, it's his phantasm. And they cried out in fear, okay, to be troubled. So reacting to things, if, if the first impulse is a fearful one, uh, just identify that and say, you know what? It's not meaning that I've plunged into carnality. It's just a, a reaction. See, it's, it's, it's a response. And take the time, think it through, evaluate it, apply faith, and, and uh, recognize that uh, you have an opportunity to glorify Christ in the midst of, uh, of your turmoil. Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 and verse 50. Mark 6, 50. I try to be a little more relaxed over certain things. You know, if you something frightening happens <laughs> and you're frightened just as a reaction, don't, you know, don't be all beaten up on yourself as if you're, you know, the biggest fearful sinner since doubting Thomas. Just say, you know, okay, great. It was a frightening situation. Now I've had time to think things through and trust in the Lord and, and apply some doctrine and I'm not, I'm not going to... Uh, you know, uh, kill myself with guilt that somehow my uh, fear response to uh, danger leaves me uh, out of fellowship. All right, Mark 6.50. Same episodes, the walking on the sea. Um, Luke, Luke one twelve. I love this one. Uh, Zacharias, uh, it was his uh, appointed time. He was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. And he was chosen to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And so this is his time. And then all the multitude were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. So he's gone in there. This is his big event. And uh, uh, he's been preparing for this for months. He's been uh, uh, getting ready and reviewing all the Levitical prescriptions and going in here to do this. And uh, he thinks he's alone. All right. You ever, you ever been in a place where you thought you were the only one there? And then all of a sudden someone says something and, and just scares you senseless, right? And uh, so he's in there offering the incense and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled. 
And, uh, you know, I'd, again, the verb is harass, so I'd probably translate that. He was, uh, you know, had the willy scared out of him. I mean, just, you think you're alone, and then all of a sudden, boom, here's this guy. Okay? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And the announcement about the baby, that's John the Baptist on the way for Zacharias and Elizabeth. All right. Luke 24, 38. The end of the ministry here, Luke 24, 38. Jesus himself has the uh, pop-in appearance here. I don't know if he teleported or whatever. He just appears, and here he is. And um, the men here on the Emmaus Road, and they're telling the story about how they recognized him when he started breaking bread and while they were telling these things he himself stood in their midst and they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit and he said to them why are you troubled and why does uh, why do doubts arise in your heart so uh principle there in fact that those questions there now that i think about it those questions there um ought to be asked anytime i believe if you're being troubled just ask that why why am i being troubled Am I being troubled for carnal reasons? I'm being troubled for testing reasons. Is the Father evaluating my faith? Am I doubting His promises? Or am I troubled for uh, other reasons, the wrong kind of reasons? Am I troubled because I'm not walking in the light? See, it's a good opportunity. Identify for what it is and then, uh, and then move on. Yeah, that's a fun episode there. We'll, we'll, we got that coming up. Startled, frightened, and troubled in those verses. Um... All right, and then John 5, 7 is what I mentioned about stirring up the waters in the pool. John eleven thirty three is our text today uh, where Jesus was troubled. Uh, John twelve twenty seven. John twelve twenty seven. And it's important to see on these episodes because as a, as a matter of vocabulary, we have verses that say, let not your heart be troubled. So when you have commands like that, you can very clearly say, well, wait a minute, this is, this is a problem. If I disobey this, then I'm sinning. When God says, don't be troubled, or let not your heart be troubled, then I have to stop and say, well, wait a minute. If that's a sin, and it happens anyway, is it my fault? How did this happen, see? And uh, we want to be able to evaluate it, because you've got passages that say this and passages that say that, and they're both true, right? We don't say that, well, I'm going to believe this and ignore that. They're both true. We just need to understand how they harmonize and what are the, what are the contrasts or what are the distinctions to be drawn here. All right, John 12:27. Jesus himself saying, now my soul has become troubled. My soul has is he sinning? No. Okay. My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. All right, so you recognize that it happened. You didn't make it happen, but it happened. You need to, what's the reaction going to be? What am I going to do now? I'm out of trouble. Okay, well, what does Jesus do here? He immediately gives it back to his father. He says, Father, here, here, here it is. Father, I'm troubled. I need to give that to you. See, understand what your purpose is. Why am I going through this? Why am I being tested with this? And then the Father, of course, answers, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So simply being troubled is not sinful. We'll see the imperative not to be troubled and show you why um, I think 
that imperative uh, is phrased the way that it is and how it is that we can uh, not disobey that command. All right, next chapter, chapter 13. Look at this, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. This section here in uh, the Gospel of John. You know this is the section where John is, pre- or where Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross. A lot of church age application we can glean out of this section of John. All right. <clears throat> but again, he has messages for them. And uh, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Again, not sinful. He recognizes it for what it is, and he understands the Father's purpose for it. Betrayal. Chapter 14. Here's our command. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so I don't think this is a a, a contradiction to what we've been seeing in these other verses. When it says, do not let... um, Understand that it may happen anyway. It may happen. You're not the one doing it, but it happens. Or also understand the the very next phrase, believe in God. When it happens, don't dwell on it. When it happens, don't allow the troubled heart to just fester and get worse and worse and worse. Did Jesus do that? No. So if it helps, you might um, take the... uh, Oh, uh, the, the present imperative here. And you might stress the continuous action of it and say, uh, do not let your heart continue to be troubled. Or do not allow your troubled heart to not uh, uh, have faith applied. See, believe in God, believe also in me. So imitate Christ. When your heart is troubled, make it a prayer item. Give it to the Father. Rest by faith. Apply the, apply the faith rest uh, principles here. You know, the, the technique, the drill, whatever you want to call it. Use faith to give that troubled heart back to the Father. The, the key is don't let it just sit there and fester in, in the troubled mentality. And that's verse 1 of that chapter. Down to verse 27 then. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See? And I think this is spelling out what happens when you're not applying faith. When you're faced with your heart being troubled as a matter of your testing. See? And and we'll delve more deeply because I'm not yet completely satisfied with my understanding of the cardia versus the pneuma in terms of Jesus being troubled in spirit uh, versus uh, the prohibition here about not being troubled in heart. In Cardia, is there a distinction to be drawn there? Possibly. And I want to evaluate that more before we get to these chapters. You know, is it, is it acceptable to be troubled in spirit like Jesus was, but not acceptable to be troubled in heart? Uh, I think we want to evaluate that. And, and if uh, that is a distinction to be made, then we want to be clear. I tend to think, though, that it's the issue of whether or not you're applying faith immediately and giving that back to the Father, you understand. See, and that's consistent with other things. That's consistent with uh, temptations. That's consistent with. I mean, you're not you're not uh, out of fellowship if you're faced with a temptation. It, you're only out of fellowship when you act on that temptation, when you dwell on it, when you consider it, when you chew on it, when you think about it, kind of a thing. See, that's when uh, conception has taken place, as sin conceives and uh, gives birth to uh, gives birth to sin. All right. Um, did I say we weren't going to spend a whole lot of time on this? All right. 
Well, now you know I'm not a prophet. Acts 15:24. It's kind of interesting to see some of the episodes in the early church in the in the uh, ministry of the apostles where this kind of thing would take place. <coughs> And after uh, this report comes about how the uh, Gentiles are getting saved. So they sent this letter, uh, the apostles and brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings, since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instructions, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Okay? And here's a sad tragedy when believers will tarasso fellow believers for no reason whatsoever or for wrong reasons. See, like when uh, Judaizers show up and start insisting on legalism as having, uh, you know, being binding upon other believers and so forth. Well, that's unsettling. It's disturbing and it's unsettling. And so it said we see it seemed good to us to become in one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul and then. Uh, we got to we got to resolve this. We don't want to disturb fellow believers. Goodness knows there's enough of that coming from the unbelievers. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to be disturbing our fellow believers in any way. Certainly not to the unsettling of your souls. So there's that. A couple more chapters later, chapter 17. It's used twice, verse 8 and verse 13. Again, these are all applications of the verb terrasso. And this is when Paul and uh, Silas get driven out of Thessalonica. Amazingly enough, even after Jason posts a bond here, well, his bond gets submitted in verse 9. But they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things. And here's this mob that's going to run Paul out of town. Uh, Verse 5, the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. All right. And so they stirred up the crowd. They stirred up the city authorities. That's a literal use of uh, terrasso there used in a mob. Verse 13. uh, Not content to simply run them out of Thessalonica, they chased them to the next town as well. And... um, when Jews of Thessalonica found the word of God had been proclaimed in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Isn't it interesting <laughs> why the adversary hates it so much when there's teaching going on? <laughs> Amazing. I met one of our new neighbors the other day at the construction site, and uh, he uh, expressed concern that those church people might be parking in his lot. And uh, when we're all done, when our building is complete and our parking lot's in place, that uh, might be some of those church people parking over here. He said, that's going to be a problem. We're going to have issues. We're going to have issues. And I'm thinking to myself, um, you already have issues. <laughs> you know, some kind of issues of a different sort. Why are you all stirred up? You know, upset we're putting a church up. One guy was hoping we'd be putting a liquor store up there and Disappointed it wasn't a liquor store. Disappointed it was going to be a church. So, all right. Well, the adversary gets stirred up when there's teaching going on. And we see that here in these two uh, episodes. All right, the last one's then Galatians 1.7, Galatians 5.10, 1 Peter 3.14.
Galatians 1 7. He says in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I'm just stunned. You guys should know better. You're saved, and now you're walking away from grace. Which is not really another gospel anyway, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Yeah, I'd say a false gospel and a legalistic approach to Christianity would be disturbing. It would certainly shake things up. But if you've got stability of doctrine, if you know the truth, then it, you'd get rid of it. So I don't want any part of that. Take your uh, non-grace, non-gospel, non-good news legalism and go somewhere else with it. We don't want it around here. Galatians 5.10. This is why, uh, again, similar context. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up? What are you listening to these guys for? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Where's this kind of teaching come from? A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. That's why you've got to get rid of it. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that, uh, or in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. If you're going to tarasso a fellow believer, Jesus Christ is going to deal with you very quickly. That's right. The application there. Fewer things will get you into divine discipline quicker than uh, causing one of these little ones to stumble. All right, and then our last one, 1 Peter 3.14. 1 Peter 3.14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, verse 13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You know, how do you get hurt living the Christian way of life? You can't go wrong. Living the Word of God in the, in the like we're studying in Corinthians right now, in, in the integrity of your heart, commending yourself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When you're living the transparent Christian way of life, how do, how do you get hurt? Where's the downside to that? Where, where's the lose in that? It's, it's a win-win every time. You cannot go wrong with that. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, in you know an earthly sense, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This isn't a lordship salvation, how to get saved. This is a, a soldier function of how to endure the angelic conflict and keep your eyes right. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. To make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You understand the venue for people asking you about your faith is normally going to be when you're getting undeserved suffering. When you're getting mistreated for walking right. And they want to know, man, look at the way they're treating you. Doesn't that hack you off? And you say, well, no, my Lord endured worse. And you've got an opportunity to testify the hope that is within you. It's a prime evangelism venue when uh, other people watch you endure your undeserved suffering with gentleness and reverence. You keep a good conscience. Again, this goes right back to what we're studying in 2 Corinthians in the moment. So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You know, 
If you're walking in the integrity of your heart with a clear conscience, commending yourself to every man's conscience on the side of God, then all the slander, all the lies they make up about you, they, they show up. They're, 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 testi- you know, they're, they're spotted for what they are. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing, you're, nothing secret, hidden in shame. You're forsaking the, things, the secret things hidden because of shame. All things will come to the light. You know, if, if people are going to believe the slander, well, you can't control that, I suppose. But you still walk in the integrity of your heart and allow for the, the falsehoods to be, uh, to be exposed when God chooses to, uh, to do so. All right. Well, these are the two terms as we reference our Savior. And, of course, he wasn't sinning in any of them. Now, thirdly, Jesus' soul turmoil produced physical tears, physiological effects of spiritual Conditions, excuse me, physiological effects of spiritual conditions. If you're going through some spiritual battles, is it going to be manifested physiologically? Does angelic conflict ever have health issues associated with it? You bet it does. Absolutely it does. Medical field starts to understand it or tries to understand it or creates different expressions. Psychosomatic is the expression where the psycho, the the soul, produces soma, body, effects. And they're correct as far as scientific, you know, medical science can understand it. But it's not just soul effects. It's not just psychosomatic. It's also pneumosomatic, spirit effects as well. Because believers and unbelievers alike have soul but only believers have spirit. And when you're troubled in spirit, there are physiological manifestations as well. And we see that here in the tearing that takes place. All right, the verb for tears, the verb for uh, weeping is dakruo, D-A-K-R-U-O. The only place in the New Testament that dakruo occurs is right here. This has been a chapter full of crying. Mary, Martha, the crowds, all kinds of crying going on in this chapter. And every time it's been Clio, not Dacruo. All right. Clio is the contrast um, further down on the screen there. K-L-A-I-O, Clio, number 2799. Okay. And Clio has 40 uses in the New Testament, including several here in this chapter. And when I think of Clio crying, usually I think of it as the um, not a silent tearing or weeping, but an actually audible wailing and crying. See? The difference ought to be obvious. If you have children, you've seen it. Or uh, any, if you've been a child, then you've done it, right? I mean, we all, this is a a human activity. Some, uh, of course, specialize in it. If uh, they've learned that uh, they can garner uh, additional sympathy, for example, um, uh, you know, if they find that they're not gaining any, then it can stop pretty quickly. Well, that's not doing anything. Uh, but if it's working, well, then hey, we can we can amplify some things and specialize in in different ways. I know a couple of my children developed that. And I'm sure others have as well. All right. Now, dacruo, as I say, is all by itself. There are the cognate noun form is dacruon, d-a-k-r-u-o-n, and dacruon has ten uses, and a dacruon is a tear. Okay, that's the noun for a tear. And uh, there are tears in this chapter as a noun. Um, I take that back, not in this chapter. 
But there um, are tears in several other places. Yeah, there are tears in this chapter. I just don't have it on the screen. That's interesting. Oh, no, no, no. No, there's tears in other chapters where the crying takes place. That makes sense. All right, do you want to spend an hour on crying? <laughs> we can go through all these. Um, no, we don't have to do that. These, these, uh, it's a good sampling, though, of, of all of our crying passages in the New Testament. Some of the crying, though, is, is not out of sadness. It's out of joy. A lot of the crying that takes place is in appreciation for salvation, for example. The woman who was crying and wiping his feet with her tears in her hair uh, wasn't out of a, a grief or out of a, a troubled soul. It was out of a, a, an overjoyed response to, you know, a, being a sinner saved by grace. There's good reasons to, to tear. There's good reasons, uh, you know, happy events that will promote tears. I don't think Jesus, though, is, is happy in this chapter. When he weeps, it's not out of joy, okay? It's, it's not the... Clearly, his is out of the turmoil that we've studied in the last two uh, in the last two passages. It is worth noting, though, and just jot these down for yourself, if you will. Luke seven, thirty-eight and forty-four has dekruon. Um, Luke seven also in verse thirty-eight also has the verb clio to cry. So, you know, as as a verb, the clio crying also produces tears, um, but it. Uh, is a larger activity that produces sound and tears. You understand. Um, tears also appear in Acts chapter 20. And that ought to be featured in uh, training ministries. If you're going to be a pastor someday, you need to understand that. Or you're going to be an evangelist someday, you need to understand that. There are tears associated with the ministry. Uh, ministering publicly from house to house. Serving night and day with tears. That's Acts chapter 20, verses 19 and 31. 2 Corinthians 2, 4. Uh, the tears there and the conflict that Paul had with the um, Corinthian believers. 2 Timothy 1, 4. Paul says, longing to see you again, even as I recall your tears. Right? In, in uh, speaking to Timothy there. Does that mean Timothy was immature? He was young? He was, uh, he was just a crybaby in the ministry? No, I think it was a, a tremendous uh, rapport between Paul and Timothy. And the tears were... Um, no uh, more carnal than Jesus' tears were in uh, John 11. Hebrews 5.7, another application in that. Let me grab that one. Hebrews 5.7. This came up in an email the other day between uh, myself and another pastor. In terms of the... Uh, <coughs> Loud crying and tears. This is the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Okay, Now, the loud crying um, could be clear. I don't recall. Actually, it could be crodzo. It could be even more of a bellowing than, uh, than Clio even is. But with tears... To the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. The priestly ministry of Jesus Christ and how we want to be imitators of that in our prayer ministries. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So this is according to the will of God. You and I, when we develop an attitude that we should not have to go through such things, 
We need to reevaluate that. That's how we're going to learn. It's one of the best ways to learn. It's how we can develop a prayer ministry. It's how we can uh, maintain piety. It's how we can keep focused. And although he uh, was a son, he learned obedience. And then it says, having been made perfect. Well, now, wasn't he already perfect to start with? How do you perfect perfection? See, well, this is a verse that describes this. This is a verse. Yes, he, ha- he was sinless. He was perfect. He's righteous. He's God, very God. However, there is a perfection to his life and his ministry and his person that when he ascends to heaven victorious, he has glories he is entitled to. To be honest with you, glories the Father's not entitled to. Glories the Holy Spirit's not entitled to. Because in his humanity, Jesus Christ accomplished what the Father did not do, what the Spirit did not do. In the hypostatic union is God-man. God the Son perfected through the sufferings that he went through. Anyway, that's for another day, but just something to think about. There's tears there, and uh, if you're preparing for ministry, understand that. You've got tears coming up as well, okay? Because uh, you understand there's nothing you would rather do. And if you couldn't pastor, if I couldn't pastor anymore for the rest of my life, if I could never be a pastor ever again, why, why would I still want to be here? There's no more purpose for being here. See? So there's nothing I'd rather do, but there are days when there's nothing I would rather do less. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. And that's how it works. You think there's tears in that? You bet there's tears in that. Is there crying in that? Is there calling out to the Father in prayer in that? Absolutely. All right. So that's the Hebrews verse on that. Um, Hebrews twelve seventeen, and then the the uh, tears that occur in Revelation. Revelation seven seventeen, Revelation twenty one four. The contrast. If you're gonna if you're gonna study crying in the Bible, then beyond tears and and weeping, there's crying in uh, Clio and the vocabulary there. And a long list of verses as well. Forty of them. Matthew 2.18. Matthew 26. Uh, that one is good because that's the quotation of... Uh, and, and a lot of them are... Tra- the New American Standard translates a lot of them weeping. And that bugs me to death. I would rather translate it crying. And then uh, if I have a conflict with crodzo for crying out, then uh, I would do something different with crodzo. Like crying out or bellowing. You know, a difference between crying and bellowing then. But find some way in English to make it clear what these terms are so that I don't overlap them. But Matthew 2.18, the massacre of all those Bethlehem babies. And the quotation from the, the prophets that Rachel is weeping for her children. Was she weeping for her children or was she crying for her children? All these babies just got massacred. Matthew 26.75 the crying there at the uh, crucifixion. In Luke 7, 38, that's the woman again wiping, crying and wiping his feet with her hair. Um, Luke 19, 41. Luke 22, 20, uh, 62. John 11. Look at all this crying in John chapter 11. Verse 31, twice in verse 33. Different from Jesus weeping, of course, in verse 35. John 16, 20. The crying there. John 20. All that crying in John chapter 20. Twice in verse 11, once in verse 13, once in verse 15. Some of these were uh, the tears of Peter when uh, he uh, had betrayed Christ, or when he had denied Christ, I'm sorry. Uh, and he, uh, the rooster crows, and as soon as the rooster crows, it's, it's just floodgates for, for Peter. You know, he's just crying. He knows that, that Jesus was right. 
And the last one then, uh, there's several in the epistles, but the one Pauline use uh, that I like is Romans 12:15, because you're commanded to do this. You have to cry. When do you have to cry? When does God tell you to cry? When others are crying as well. Yeah, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and cry with those who cry. Okay? There's a time for rejoicing. There's a time for crying. I didn't put Septuagint uses there, but Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to cry. And sometimes you need to. And uh, when your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, when they're going through what they're going through, then you're, you're supposed to be right on hand. You ought to be right on hand. And so uh, that's why it says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, the verse doesn't stop there. Say, well, okay, I'm I'm okay with that first half of that verse. (laughs) Yeah, just, Lord, surround me with happy people. And I'll uh, I'll just spend my day rejoicing. Well, that's half the story. Weep with those who weep. What if they're the same people? What if the same people who are rejoicing while they're weeping? Because they have the doctrine to understand, rejoice always, in everything give thanks. I'll be there in a moment too. All right. And that's the fourth thing we'll see. Hey, we're we're making it. I knew we'd make it. Last thing we'll see here. In the context of the shortest verse of the English Bible, right? Jesus wept. You learned that in Sunday school, right? It was, it was the, the quickest memory verse that you'd ever learned in your life. For some folks, maybe it's the only Bible verse they've learned in their life. At least start there, okay? In the context of the shortest verse in the English Bible, we see Jesus make application for the shortest verse in the Greek Bible. Yeah, you know, Jesus wept. It's not the shortest book in the Bible, not in the Greek. Yeah, some crazy pastor probably taught you that years ago. Uh, because it's three words long, you got a definite article in front of Jesus, ha Jesus, da cruo, and uh, you can count the number of letters, and it's more words, more letters, than rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Rejoice always is only two words. Pentata kairita, I think. And fewer letters than Jesus wept. Well, what does it say? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And so what does Jesus do? As he's weeping, what's the next thing out of his mouth? Where have you laid him? And um, then he's weeping and he comes to the tomb and he says, uh, remove the stone. And look at his prayer. Even before he prays, he says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So he's working through his troubled soul And he's working through by rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and in everything giving thanks. And they remove the stones. He lifts up his eyes. He says, Father, I thank you. This is going to be a happy day. And this is what is going to reorient his spirit um, through the uh, troubled spirit, through the weeping process. I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around... (laughs) These loiterers, all right? You understand that? Does God ever assign things to you that you don't need? You know the lesson. You know how it works. Why why are you going through it again? So your wife can learn it. So your children can learn it. So your neighbors can learn it. It's not for you. You're simply assigned the task of enduring it, glorifying Christ through it, so that others can see this and rejoice in that. And everything give thanks. 
Because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. All right, well, he set aside his soul turmoil to praise the Father's perfect plan. He's able to set it aside. Are you going through some soul turmoil? Well, the Father directed it or permitted it. He's got a purpose for it, so don't dwell on it. And just say, all right, Father, what are you going to do with this? And thank him for it. Praise him for it. Rejoice in it. Absolutely rejoice in it. All right. Next week we'll move on and see the response here. Uh, the Jews that uh, didn't like it. Some actually get saved. And uh, many of them get saved in verse 45. But then others go to the Pharisees and tell them the things he had done. Chance to rat them out. Chance to report. And uh, start plotting more murder. And so we'll tackle that. We have a one class next week, if I remember right. And then the following week, we have the week off. Um, March 10th, I'll be in Houston for the Schaefer Conference. So there will not be a uh, Poimenike prayer meeting that morning. And there will not be a Life of Cla- uh, Christ class that morning either. So, all right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Uh, Father, for the sunshine. Thank you for uh, melting the snow and... Uh, um, we do continue to lift up our construction project. Thank you. There's been total 100% safety at this point. No injuries, no harm to any of the workers. Father, we give you the praise and the glory for that. Even when the, the kind of boneheaded guy hit the gas line in there, Father, uh, no explosions, no danger, no uh, injuries. And uh, you are a God of grace, and I thank you for that. So, Father... Um, We're looking forward to seeing this building go up. We're looking forward to making the move. It's all in your timing. And uh, mostly, Father, it would be even better if we hear a trumpet first and just take us out of here, Father. So that's that's in your hands, too. Thank you for the story here in John 11, for the truth of the resurrection and the life, for the encouragement this doctrine gives us day by day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.